God's act of providing for and sustaining and governing all things. God's act of providing for and sustaining and governing and ruling over all things, that's known as His providence. And God's providence is often perplexing. I think we would agree that there are times where His work does indeed seem mysterious in some ways. After becoming a Christian, 18th century hymn writer William Cooper came to realize that it was oftentimes during the dark days of trials and difficulties that God would use that darkness to rain down showers of His mercy and grace. Just the perplexing reality that through difficulties, God would still be gracious and merciful. He wrote a hymn entitled, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, and I believe he captured this truth well. This is what we read. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he fashions up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds that you much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. For behind a frowning providence... He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. I wonder if you believe that this morning. I wonder if you believe that the storm clouds of hardship and pain and trial and grief that we dread are really filled with blessings and mercy that will break over our head. Many of you have lived under such dark clouds for some time that perhaps you really don't believe that behind earthly frowning providence, there is a heavenly smiling face. And maybe you continue to wonder why he has done this or why he is doing these things. And my heart's been heavy this week just thinking of you and thinking of those of you that, that find yourself in this place where all you have tasted or all you are tasting is the bitterness of the bud and not the sweetness of the flower. And you're waiting on the blossom to happen. And my heart not only has been heavy for you, my heart has been hopeful for you. My heart's been hopeful because we approach the book of Ruth. This seemingly obscure, small, tucked in between Judges and 1 Samuel. 85 verses of what most would say is clearly the most beautiful short story ever written. The book of Ruth. Ruth, the only book named after a non-Israelite. Ruth. It seems that Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, is sort of center stage, and the story kind of revolves more around her. Ruth. A book in which Boaz will, we hear Boaz's words more than any other in this book. But the one who's on display most is God himself. And what God is doing through this small book is he is reminding us that no matter how dark your days are, or no matter how despairing your life is or has become, he is at work. It was written some it was written shortly after 1000 BC. So think about this. This was written about a thousand years before Christ would come. This book is 3000 years removed for, for, from us and it continues to speak loudly to us. And perhaps the most extraordinary aspect of the book of Ruth is the ordinariness of it. 
It's not a book that's filled with stories of war and angelic visitations and large arcs and daring rescues and kings and parting of seas and burning bushes. No, it's this deeply human and honest story that shows God is at work in the regular rhythms of life, through the mundane, the normal, everyday life. I mean, no matter what you are projecting forth on your social media feed, most of life is filled with disappointing failures. It's filled with work. It's filled with commuting. It's filled with dishes and laundry and bills, mild successes and sudden surprises and disappointing failures. The book of Ruth is about ordinary people facing ordinary trials and triumphs in this life. It's a book that covers relocation and infertility and sudden and unexpected death and marriage and difficult decisions, needs, tearful goodbyes, and perhaps most importantly, wondering through it all, where in the world is God? In one story, or in one lens, this story is just a simple story of ordinary people in an ordinary place a long time ago trying to navigate tragedy. And yet the bigger story is about the invisible hand of God using dark seasons of life to, to carve and create a greater good than we would ever expect or imagine. And though it's a love story, the story doesn't begin in the fields of romance. It begins in the fields of tragedy. And so I'd like to pray that God would be gracious as we journey through this book. Our Holy Father, we ask that you would help us, meet with us, show us, speak to us. And I pray that you would do it in a way that would allow you to be center stage. Remind us of our need. Remind us of where our hope is found. And we pray this in the matchless name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1. And as we see the curtain rise on the first act, what many would say, one of the most breathtaking short stories, it's good for us to remember that this isn't merely a story. This is history. But it's also the Word of God, God kindly inviting and speaking to us this morning. And so let's consider the context of the book of Ruth, and we will find this as we jump into the first few verses. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and two sons. And so verse 1 helps us locate this story historically. It takes place during a time after the death of Joshua and before the appointment of Saul as kings, uh, as a king. And so it would, it would serve us well to just remember in the book of Joshua... God's people were graciously rescued and they were allowed to enter the land that the Lord had given them. And yet the book after Joshua, the book of Judges, what we find is that while in the land, God's people, God's people turn away from him again and again and again and again. And they would cry out to the Lord and the Lord would hear their cries. I mean, just think of the grace. God has brought them to a land that they didn't deserve, make promises to them that they were unworthy of. And yet while in the land, the land in which he has promised to not only provide for them, but to be with them, they begin to turn from him. And in the gracious act of God, that when they found themselves in trouble, they would cry out and God would hear them. And God would raise up a judge among them who would then provide a deliverance for them. They would praise God for a short time and then after some time had passed, they would 
repeat the cycle again and again. This happened for about 400 years. The last verse, if you literally were to just look back at Judges chapter 21, verse 25, the last verse gives us an idea of the state of affairs. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's some of the worst of times, and yet the book of Ruth is summoning us, calling us to see that even in the most, the worst of times, God is still at work. We're meant to behold that he is still at work in the places and in the people and in the times that we would least expect it. And this would explain also the famine. The famine there is meant to grab our attention. What we know about famines in the Old Testament is that most of them, oftentimes famines were not merely owing to weather weather patterns. They were owing to the disciplinary hand of God. I mean, you see this in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 23. The heaven which is over your head shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you shall be iron. Verse 24, the Lord will make it rain, will make the rain of your land powder and dust. From heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. So there was this idea that if they were to live in obedience, that God would bless them, he would be with them. And if they were to live in disobedience, then he would send consequences for that. He would discipline his people in hopes of seeing their hearts turned back to him. Leviticus chapter 26 verses 18 and 19 capture again the the theological reasoning behind famines. And so what we know is that this land that was once flowing with milk and honey was now experiencing famine because of the disobedience of his people. And God leveraged a famine to turn his people back to him. And we're introduced to this family. This family living in Bethlehem. Literally, it means the house of bread. This family living in Bethlehem, the house of bread. And the irony is that it's now breadless in the house of bread. And so because of the famine, this family heads to Moab. We're introduced to the family in verse 2, Elimelech and his wife Naomi, his two sons who really, uh, after this, really don't get named. They're named once more in verse 5. They're not mentioned rest of this short book. And this family, they head to Moab. It may not sound like much to us, but this would have been a terrible idea. Moab. God delivered his people. He brought them to a promised land where he told them he would be with them and he would make his presence known among them. And they leave. They leave because it's lean. They leave because of difficulty. They leave because of trial. It would have reminded the readers of what happens during Genesis 12 when Abraham would leave the promised land to go to Egypt. It really was an act of unbelief. As we're reading this, we're, we're reading it, we're seeing this, this gnawing tension that's growing in our souls of just wanting to cry out to Elimelech, don't leave. God has brought you here, don't leave. And certainly don't go to Moab. The history of Moab, Elimelech knew this. They originated from incest. They had been enemies opposing not only God, but also God's people. The Moabite women seduced Israel to worship false gods. At one point, the Moabites oppressively ruled over God's people. And so famine hits, tragedy strikes, the family is hungry, the thought emerges in Elimelech's mind, where do I go? Where will I go to take care of my family? The first place you think of is not Moab. It was close. There wasn't a famine. But it was opposed to God. And so, I mean, we're literally in the first verse or two, and the dark cloud over this story is becoming more and more visible. 
And the story begins to be a little bit more focused on this obscure and ordinary family, Elimelech. Elimelech's name means my God is king, which is debatable based on his actions. Not whether God is king, but whether his God was king. His wife, Naomi, their two sons, instead of staying in Israel they, and, and repenting and crying out for mercy. Do you remember how Judges ended? And everyone was doing right in their own eyes. Ruth begins and Elimelech is doing the same thing. He does right in his own eyes and he leads his family to Moab. It doesn't seem to be a part of a mass exodus. I mean, I'm reading this, I'm just thinking you should have stayed in the land. God had given you this land. He had promised to provide for you. He promised to meet with you. But instead, this pagan land of Moab. And his intention seems to be, it says that he sojourned in the land of Moab. Sojourn there doesn't mean that you're moving to reside. It means you're passing through. But what we see at the end of verse 2 is they remained there. This relocation would come along and have with it grave consequences. And though Elimelech and his family can flee the famine, they can't outrun the providence of God. They can't outrun the providence of God. And what we find is Elimelech passes away. He dies. We're not sure how long after they landed in Moab that this happened. He dies. And his decision to flee the land that God had promised and to flee the place where God promised to provide, his decision has now left his wife vulnerable. Vulnerable in a pagan land among a pagan people. She becomes the main character in Act 1. And what we find in verse 4 is that her sons... Her sons take for themselves Moabite women. Again, you see the slope that began, I don't know if this is a good idea, and now Moab, uh, Naomi is left alone in a pagan country, and her sons are now marrying pagan women. And the concern there we see in Deuteronomy chapter 7 There was warnings to not intermarry with other countries that did not worship the one and true living God because of how that would bring about idolatry, false worship. And what we expect after we hear about these marriages that are taking place, we expect to hear the announcement of a lineage of how these marriages then led forth to births. And that doesn't seem, uh, that doesn't happen. It seems then that infertility is a part of both of these families. And so they're living in Moab for 10 years, removed from the death of Elimelech. And then in verse 5, we read that both of her sons then die. She's left with no husband, she's left with no sons. She's left without any avenue of male support in a world when a woman's economic support depended on a care system and the provision of men. I mean, Naomi has no hope. She has no security. She has no home. Naomi has nothing. She has no future. And it's in the midst of this moment of tragedy that's seeming to just overwhelm this story that the first bit of good news appears in verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. The Lord has provided It's what he promised that he would do. And had they stayed, they would have been partaking of his provision. 
she sets out with her daughters-in-law and heads towards home. There's good news because bread is now returned to the house of bread. And for the first time in this book, God is mentioned. And the bright light of this verse, the mentioning of God and the hope and the seed that he's at work in the midst of tragedy, it's meant to sort of make our eyes adjust. It's meant to startle us against the dark backdrop that has dominated the first five verses. Naomi understands this good news to be owing to the Lord. The Lord has provided this bread. And so we read in verse 7, So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to your own Uh, each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and they wept and they said to her, no, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, return my daughters. Why should you go with me? I have I yet any sons in my womb that they may be your husbands return my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. She and Orpah and Ruth are heading home. Naomi can see, she literally can see, no prospect for any future hope. And I believe in a very selfless act, she insists that her daughters-in-law return home. Go back. Go back where there's a future. Because if you stay with me, there is not one. I mean, verse 9, this would have been a scene that if you were traveling on the road that day, you wouldn't have been able to ignore it. I mean, these women were weeping. Years of walking through tragedy together. Weeping about the prospect of going their separate ways. It appears that they've even grown closer to to one another than they have remained close with their own families. Naomi continues to just, they insist, no, 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 we're going to stay with you. Naomi comes back and says, no, you have to go. And she gives reasons, but the primary reason in verse 13, she makes clear. The hand of the Lord is against me. You cannot stay with me. If you stay with me, only tragedy will accompany you for the rest of your life. She thinks the Lord has turned against her. She believes the Lord is targeting her with his wrath. His hand is against me. Thus, her daughter-in-laws, by not following her, they can avoid his wrath. Naomi is slowly becoming a bitter woman, blaming God for the tragedies and the grief and the hardships in her life. And here's here's the scary thing, is that theologically, Naomi is right. Naomi is right. God is sovereign over what's happening. God is sovereign over her family. God is sovereign over the infertility. God is sovereign over the death that they've experienced. God is sovereign over the famine. But what Naomi cannot see is that while he has all power and while he has all control, he doesn't seem to be good in how he's wielding it. And so the trials then lead her not to question whether he's in control, but to question whether he can be trusted with the control that he has. She's missing the bigger picture of God's goodness. And in talking to some of my neighbors that are not yet Christians, this point comes up all the time. 
if God is good, then why in the world would he allow hardship and evil and suffering? Why does he not just put an end to it all? And perhaps you're here and you're not a Christian and you say, this is my, this is my hurdle. I don't believe I can follow a God who would allow tragedies and evil. Why doesn't he just put an end to it all? If I could just encourage you and remind you that all of history is moving towards the place where an end is coming to it all. And even just to give you a different perspective, there are other people who are suffering like you, maybe even worse than you, who aren't discouraged and pushed away from God because of their suffering, but who in fact find hope that there is one who is bigger than suffering, who in fact find hope that there isn't an evil that's running rampant uncontrolled by anyone, but that it's all under his hand. It doesn't mean that the difficulties and the tragedies and the griefs and the hardships are easy, but it does mean that they're not ultimate. And there's one who sits over them all, and as we will see throughout this book, who is using even the most difficult of circumstances to bring about his promises and the good of his people. And so what do they do? Verse 14, they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. Orpah leaves. She's convinced there's not a hope if I stay here. And she leaves. But Ruth clung to Naomi. Ruth stays. Verse 15. Naomi makes one more appeal to Ruth. So she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. We can, we can debate the evangelistic effectiveness of this. Go back to the false gods. Don't come with me. Right? We can't commend the evangelistic effectiveness of her counsel. But yet again, one more time, Naomi appeals. Don't follow me. There is no future here. And what Naomi can't see are the thousands of small ways that God is doing that exact thing. He is orchestrating a plan so that there would be a greater future than she could ever imagine. Ruth then responds as she's at this crossroad. She sees Orpah go one way. She sees Naomi going another way. And she responds with some of the most resolved and beautiful words in this story, verses 16 and 17. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus, may the Lord do with me, do to me. And worse, if anything, but death parts you and me. These words compellingly convey fervent love and fierce loyalty. Right? I'm sure some of us, maybe you may even had this at your wedding. Some of us have gone to weddings and we hear these words. But it's just helpful for us to know that this isn't the wedding story. I mean, the context for where these words are spoken couldn't have been any more drastic than that of a wedding. And if you had them spoken at your wedding, you're not, it's not a, you're not, you didn't do anything wrong. It's just helpful for us to not attach this to this serene moment of, of, of hopeful future expectation. It's actually in the opposite of that. These words were spoken in the immediate aftermath of severe suffering on the road to Moab, to this obscure mother-in-law from an obscure Moabite daughter-in-law. They're spoken in what appears to be a hopeless future. 
I mean, Ruth has no advantages to making a move like this. She stands to gain nothing except to be with Naomi, who is growing more and more bitter towards her God. Ruth is a Moabite. For her to go back to the Israelites, there's no future for her. There's no future husband prospect for her. Naomi's a widow. There's no economic support that Ruth can anticipate. Ruth's commitment to adopt Naomi's God as her God is perplexing. I mean, Ruth is willing to look at Naomi, to see how Naomi's suffering, to hear how Naomi would say, God is against me. And for Ruth to say, I want that God. It doesn't make sense. Why would Ruth want to commit to Naomi's God in light of Naomi's experience? This can't be explained by Naomi cared really well for Ruth. This can't be explained only by, well, Ruth really loves Naomi. I think those things are true. I don't think there's a human rationale for this. I think it's only explained by the unseen yet always working hand of God. Do you remember what William Cooper wrote? God moves in mysterious ways. His wonders to perform. I'm thinking, Ruth, you should have taken the route to Moab. You would have had a hopeful future, and yet instead you make a commitment to Naomi's seemingly hopeless future, a commitment to her God who is intent to aggravate woes, and yet God will use that ultimately to provide deliverance, not just for this struggling, lonely family, but for every family that would turn to him. Naomi realizes that Ruth is resolved in verse 18, so she doesn't bring it up anymore. Ruth is abandoning her family, her country, her friends, her gods with no promise of security to join her bitter mother-in-law. I wonder when you find yourself at the crossroad, do I lean into what God has said? What I know about him to be true? Or do I take the route that it's a little bit easier and allows me to lay hold of things, a future that I can see with my own eyes? Do we follow God? Do we trust in the hard? Or do we head to Moab? Do we wait for the godly one or do we settle by choosing the one who doesn't worship the same God? We all know the pain of taking the wrong road. We all know what it's like to choose the road that leads us to nowhere. There's a beautiful scene in Prince Caspian. Lucy spots Aslan when they're lost. No one else sees him, but she sees him and she faces a decision. Will she follow Aslan no matter what anyone else says or will she go with the rest of the group. There's an inner turmoil that seems to ensue and she follows the group. And later on, she encounters Aslan and they're talking and he says, why didn't you follow me? I know you saw me. Aslan says, you should have followed me. It would have been okay. In fact, it wouldn't have not, it would have not just been okay. It would have been better for you to have followed me. You would have been able to go and be where you want to go and be. And she said faintly, it would have turned out all right had I followed you. How? How was I to know? And Aslan says, to know what would have happened, child? No one has ever told that. Lucy says, oh dear. And Aslan says, but anyone can find out what will happen. You may not be told specifically what's going to unfold, 
But you can know what will happen based on the promises that God has made in and through his word. What does tomorrow hold? I have no clue. But what you can know is that you will not walk through whatever it holds alone. You see, this is the Christian faith. We know what we are, uh, we know that we are like how it was during the times of the judges. We are, we are all like Elimelech. We all love to do what is right in our own eyes. And the Bible tells us what will happen. Though we don't know where that's going, we don't know what's going to happen specifically, we do know that when we do right in our own eyes, the Bible says that that will lead us to a place of destruction. And it will lead us to a place that is incurring the just penalty for that sin against the holy God. God will pour out his wrath on sinners who do not give up the sin. We know that will happen. He's made that clear. But the Bible also tells us, though I can't tell you where you're going to be in a week or in two months or whether hardship is going to be this or that, I can tell you that the Bible says that all who who turn from their sin and trust in the sinless life of Christ and the substitutionary death of Christ and his bodily resurrection on the third day, that all who trust in that, they can know life in the place of the death that they deserve. They can know forgiveness in the place where they stand guilty. They can know abundance of life now where they stand searching, grasping for anything that will bring happiness. They can know future security with God as opposed to eternal separation from him forever. And the good news is that the book of Ruth points us to this story about this God who's working even even the bad out for the good of his people. And if you're not a Christian, I would just plead with you this morning. I mean, I would... If if you would give me the chance, I would love to sit with you and just talk to you about the ways in which you can know what is coming. You may not know the specifics of how it's going to come. You can know the truth of what is coming. And the good news is that there is a forgiveness and a grace that will pardon you from that and will give you something that you could never earn and that you don't deserve. You can get God. And that's the good news of the Christian faith, that is if you're willing to give up, and to be clear, it will cost you. It will cost you to say no to this world and to say yes to Christ. But what you give up does not compare to what you gain in being restored to your God. It would be the joy of any person in this room to talk to you about how you lay hold of that. And if you don't talk to anyone, I want you to know you can lay hold of that by turning from your sin and placing your faith and your trust in Christ alone. He, God, listen, God is the God who uses Elimelech's sin here to set the stage for the greatest demonstration of his grace in all of human history. God takes our sin, nails it to his son on the cross, and there sets the stage for the grandest picture of how his glory is going to go to all the nations. Well, Naomi and Ruth arrive in Bethlehem, and it's been 10 years, and we read that the whole town is stirred up, verse 19. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And Naomi said to them, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi returned, and with her, Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. 
The effects of suffering are so great on Naomi that her friends don't even recognize her. She's so embittered by this experience that she demands a name change. Do not equate me with pleasant because God does not see me that way. You call me bitter because that's how my God has dealt with me. I went away full and now I'm returning empty. And here's Here's the irony and the awkwardness of this. Welcome home, Naomi. Don't, don't call me Naomi. Do you know why she left? She didn't leave full. She left because there was a famine. She left because she thought had she stayed, they wouldn't make it. You see, the narrative in her mind had so been constructed where Naomi began to think, we had it so good, and now look at me. And yet, what do we find when she leaves? There's no food in the house. There are family around her. And she returns, there's food in the house, and there's family around her. Her bitterness has blinded her to the kindness of God in front of her. The author perceives this. And the author wants you and I to perceive what Naomi can't perceive. I mean, you get to the end of Ruth chapter 1 and you're just going, how in the world does she think that she left full and she came back empty? Can she not see just the evidences of God's grace in her life? Look at verse 6. It wasn't just that the famine was over, but it was that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And don't overlook the provision of food. It's an expression of God's kindness to his people. Also, verse 6, for Naomi to hear about the end of the famine, she is in a Moabite country. She didn't check social media. She didn't get a phone call that said, hey, it's ended. How in the world did she even get wind that the famine was over? The kindness of the Lord would allow her to hear this news. You just want to say, Naomi, you didn't go away full. If you were full, you would have never left Israel. And Naomi, you are not returning empty. Ruth is standing right next to you. And Naomi is so bittered. She's so blinded because of her bitterness that she cannot even see God's grace in giving her Ruth. The words that move us when we hear them at a wedding, they did not move Naomi when she first heard them. She didn't see how this was God providing for her. She couldn't see the gracious provision of God that was standing right next to her. And look at verse 22. We'll see this next week. But the timing of their return, they come back at such a time as this. God brought Naomi and Ruth back exactly at the right time. It's barley harvest. She's coming, she's coming back to a land that didn't have any hope for future food. And the Lord has brought her back at just the right time. And as the curtain comes down on Act 1, these last words really do set the stage for Act 2. And yet her bitterness blinds her. And the Christian who's familiar with suffering, you understand Naomi's disposition. You understand her struggle. We're tempted to have hard hearts and to accuse, to say, why in the world have you turned against me? God, why have you dealt bitterly with me? When we become bitter, we so easily become blind to the evidences of grace that are around us. And the book of Ruth is a gift to every one of us who are suffering. 
I love how John Piper says why this book is a gift to us. He says what the book of Ruth does for us is it gives us a glimpse into the hidden work of God during the worst of times. He is at work doing a thousand things that no one can see but him. And when you think he's farthest from you or has even turned against you, as you cling to him, he is laying foundation stones for greater happiness in your life. Seeing is a precious gift and bitterness is a powerful blinder. What would Naomi say if she could see only a fraction of the thousands of things that God was doing? She wouldn't say, don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. No, I think she would say, God moves in mysterious ways. His wonders to perform. And this is what Ruth is teaching us. That God is at work in the worst of times. And if we're not careful, our bitterness will blind us. So life doesn't look like you thought it would. Do you trust God? I mean, really, will you trust him? Do you trust him? Have you been trusting him? I'm aware that some of you are reminded of your suffering just just by hearing Ruth 1. Pastors prepare messages like this to serve those they love with tears in their eyes. And so even studying this week, it's your suffering that I'm reminded of. And I'm praying, I've been praying, God, may bitterness not blind those in this church that I love. The book of Ruth is a gift. It's a gift to those that are suffering chronically or temporarily to give us sight, to protect us against bitterness that blinds us from his kindness. Thomas Watson in his book, The Art of Divine Contentment, this is what he says. A gracious heart spies mercy in every condition. A gracious heart spies mercy in every condition. Our tendency is to pour over our losses rather than to ponder our mercies. Our hearts are more discontent at one loss than they are thankful for a hundred mercies. The Lord has sent me back empty, she says. And in our suffering, we are all tempted to be preoccupied with our losses. But instead, Covenant Life Church, we must learn to spy mercies at every turn. Ruth gives us eyes to see the hidden work of God in all things. And these tender mercies, they're not spectacular. But they're no less supernatural. This book is about little mercies in daily life that can easily go unnoticed. Naomi didn't perceive these things. What about you? What about you? Even in the worst of times... God is at work. All Naomi can see is loss. And maybe the most spectacular evidence of his kindness is that as Naomi returns, she returns to Bethlehem. And surely you wonder, just in hearing the story, Bethlehem, I wonder, is that the same Bethlehem that a thousand years later, Jesus is going to, it is. It is. One author would say, who would have imagined that in the worst of all the times, the period of the judges, God was quietly moving in the tragedies of a single family to prepare the way for a future day in Bethlehem. That through Ruth, through a Moabite pagan God worshiper, through Ruth, the royal line of David will be preserved and secured. And one day, King David's greater son would be born in this very location for sinners like you and me. And he would stand up and say, all who are hungry, you can come feast in the house of Bethlehem because today God has provided. They're simply holding out hope for survival. But returning to Bethlehem, these two ladies are preparing the way for a future evening in Bethlehem some 400 years later when those very skies would be lit with a spectacular display of angelic proclamations saying, this is the promised one.
God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. And as a memorial for not forgetting of how he moves, he has instituted a meal where those who have repented of their sins and trusted in him, they come and they feast. And they remember that even if life is difficult, they come and they feast. They feast on the work that God has done in giving us Jesus Christ. And as a local church, we observe this meal together. It's a corporate declaration, right? The Lord's Supper is where the many individuals, we come together at this table, and this is what unites us. Our mission statement doesn't unite us. This is what unites us, is that we are together in Christ. And so here at Covenant Life, the Lord's Supper is open. It's open to those who are baptized believers. The way you publicly identify with Christ is not by partaking of this meal first. It's by identifying with him in the ordinance of baptism. Well, how do you know if you belong to Christ after you've been baptized? You keep coming to the table. And so this meal is open for baptized believers that are members of good standing in a church that preaches the same gospel as we do. You see, this meal isn't merely about you and Jesus. It's clearly about you and Jesus, but that's not all it's about. You're identifying with a people and you're identifying with a God who has given a message and that message is what you are demonstrating. You are making visible that message. And so if, if no church has affirmed your profession, there's no kind of free agent, yeah, I'm good. No, God has designed that his church affirms that. And so this meal is open for baptized believers that are members of good standing, not, being, not having sent out from church discipline, not having reconciled that. You're a member of good standing in a local church that preaches the same gospel. And you're walking in repentance of your sin. This isn't a meal for perfect people. It's not a meal for people that hadn't struggled in the last 24 to 48 hours. No, uh, this is a meal for those who do struggle. It's us coming saying, we need the work of Christ. But this isn't for those that are, uh, yeah, I'm making allowance for sin. I'm not going to give up my sin. No, this is a meal of those who say, I'm willing to forsake my sin. But it's also a meal of those that are walking in reconciliation with others. Because this is a corporate meal, there is a glory that's on display, and that is displayed oftentimes even by our unity. And so if you're not willing to be unified with a brother or sister, then don't think that you can come and sort of pretend that you are right with the Lord. And so here at Covenant Life, the table is open to baptized believers that are walking, uh, who are members of good standing in a local church, walking in repentance and walking in reconciliation with others. Let me pray. When I am done praying, music will start. Feel free to come down, pick your elements, go back to your seats, and we'll take the supper together. Let's pray. God, we love you, and we, thank, we are thankful that you have loved us and you've shown that to us. You've demonstrated that even during the worst of times. You've taken the worst event and moment in history and have brought about the greatest good. And now we have a future and we have a hope because of the work of Christ. And so together, all of us who belong to one another, we come to this moment in this service and we say, let us eat and drink and remember. And let us do it for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.